Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Daryl Heaps, founder and CEO of Q4. They're a capital markets access platform that is reinventing how public companies, sell-side bankers, and investors engage. In this conversation, we aim to focus on building of public companies and the importance of investor relations. However, we fruitfully weaved it through a ton of different topics. Now, from our discussion, I can see that Daryl has very intentionally raised over $100 million for his business. But he makes a point that successfully raising money is not winning. It's how you properly deploy that capital, how you put it to work so that you create value to reward the investors who have taken a bet on you. I also enjoyed how Daryl took us through the early stages of founding Q4 and how he's developed himself personally as a leader and how his roles have evolved. When it comes to Q4 going public, he says that it's helping him inform how they're developing products for their clients and their clients are ultimately public companies. So it's an interesting symbiotic relationship. Now, there's no arguing that building a public company is hard work. But there are more and more technology companies like Q4 coming out that are aiming to make it easier and more efficient. And with that comes a lot of lessons and things that can be applied to make investor relations better. Whether you're a seasoned CEO or IR pro or a new founder of a public or private company, trust me, there's a lot of information in this interview and I think you'll enjoy it. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services, and he's been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me. Yes. I'm looking forward to this interview because I've been following the work Q4 has done for a long time. And I think the world of investor relations and the digitization thereof is really fascinating. And so I'd love to speak about that. But I think the best place for us to start is with an introduction from yourself. Oh, wonderful. Well, that's great. And thanks for thanks for those kind words in terms of following Q4 and also uh, something that that we're all quite passionate here around the digitization of uh, of the markets and also what that means for investor relations, but also really kind of like all stakeholders across the market and kind of the exciting stuff that's happening over the last few years, which I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get into. My background is I started Q4 back in 2006. It was my third company. I'd, I'd started kind of a web development company in the late 90s. I sold that, and then I had a, another company briefly, but then I left that to start Q4 and. The, the kind of the, the core founding idea of the business was that I wanted to start a business that was subscription-based, but that was connected to consistent demand. Hmm. And I'd grown up in and around the capital market. So I come from the tech side. I'm, I'm, I come from the website of things and technology, not from the markets, but my family comes from the markets. So like growing up, kind of talk around the dinner room table was always the markets and stocks and investments and so much so that, you know, during my teen years, I'm like, I'm never, ever doing anything to do with that, <laughs> being the rebel. But when I was looking for a business to to really build, I, I felt really compelled that I think the relationship between public companies, well, companies in general and investors, but thinking about the public markets, public companies and public investors, the relationship is so incredibly symbiotic that they need each other to survive. Mm. And so as long as we believed that the stock market itself would last forever, then if we were able to insert kind of software and technology in between those two sides of the market, that should be a business that lasts forever. That sure. should be incredibly durable. That should be something that we can build on forever. And so I thought that that was really compelling and really believed in that and also believed that the web and technology and everything that 
was just going to continue to disrupt and change everything. So if we could kind of combine those two things, the market in that position, along with web and internet technology, that would be a great business. So then went about building a web content management system that we sold to public companies. So that was just going to them and saying, and we started in Toronto, I'm born and raised in Toronto. So started selling that to like to mining companies and just saying, hey, here's a better way to manage your investor website. But it was really like a back office solution. First couple of years, that's what the business was, where we were just kind of, it was like a go-to-market strategy. Let's sell this piece of software to public companies and sell it on subscription, which was also at that point was an innovative idea to not sell kind of on-prem, but sell it as a cloud solution. Yeah. And the interesting thing that happened is in when 08 happened, we had maybe 40 clients or so, 40, 50 clients doing about 500 grand in revenue or something like that. The financial crisis hits and no one cancels. No one cancels. Mm. Everyone pays their bills on time. And we were like, it was the first proof point that this is a durable service. It's an essential service for the markets. And so it was from there that we then pivoted and said, okay, this isn't about just a web content management system. This is really about a platform and about how can we serve all the use cases for investor relations and take that stack of like every single thing that they need. How can we bring all that into software? But the broader idea was for us to really kind of evolve from being this idea of like the durable aspect of the business to really thinking about the platform and how do we connect the three sides of the market. By that point, I'd understood more about the sell side, understood the essential part that they play in kind of the three sides of the market, the corporates, the buy side and the sell side. And we felt that there's an opportunity here to create a platform that connects those three sides. And our plan at that, when we started, this is kind of in 2010, is like build the corporate side first, build the supply side, which is to be able to deliver all the IR services we can to public companies and scale that business. And as we do that, that's going to attract more and more of the buy side that's going to interact with our platform. And we did that over a number of years to build up the, the corporate business. And that went from, to give you kind of a frame of reference, the first like five years in the business, we got to maybe 100 clients. And the next five year chapter from like 2010 2010 to like 2015, we got to a thousand. And then the next five-year chapter, which we're just on kind of the end of that, we're now kind of 2,600 on our way to 3,000. And that came from as we understood more and more about what IR needed and what those products were. And as we built out the range of solutions, we're able to attract more and more customers to the platform. Hmm. But the the big idea and what we're really focused on and is really around like capital markets access. So we think about communication as one part companies kind of communicating out. Then you think about access being whether it's corporate access, you know, investors wanting to meet with corporates or investor access, corporates wanting to meet with investors. It's all about facilitating kind of the fundamental side of the market, which is, you know, humans making decisions, humans making investment decisions. You've got public companies targeting, okay, who are the individuals that I need to interact with and I can gain access to? And then similarly, investors, the fundamental investors that are not just traders, they're not momentum, you know, they're not algo driven, they're fundamental investors that are looking for great businesses to invest. And what our mission is, is to connect those sides of the market, along with enabling banks to be an important part of that, with really the ability to kind of unite all of that on one platform. And that's what we call uh, capital markets access Hmm. platform. And that's been our, our big push over the last probably well, since we raised venture money, so that was back in like 2015, has been like, that's the mission of the business to unite all the sides across those kind of fundamental workflows. Interesting. That was a super long introduction. No. <laughs> so that was just like, hey, Daryl, what's your name? And <laughs> um, but hopefully, uh, hopefully that, uh, that gives you a good overview on the business. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. And as you're going through, lots of questions were coming to mind. And one thing is I like the the discussion of how you, like in five-year tranches, kind of built the business up and now... And I really like the point you pointed or you, you highlighted there of, of being a very durable company and your analysis mm-hmm. there and how you approached it. And so that's interesting to me. One thing I've, I've experienced, and, and honestly, Daryl, like I, I really like Q4, but I don't want to make this a pitch for Q4. And I yes. hope the listeners get that. But the thing that I see there that works is there's a user experience that makes it easier for corporations and investors to engage. And to me, I, I've said before, like, and I remember in, in my earlier days in finance, due diligence to me was not about what was said, but it's about how it was delivered. It was the mm-hmm. the user experience of a due diligence process that could make or break a deal is something that I started to see. And I also see this in the world of investor relations is how easy is it to get the information you need or to get the meeting you want to have 
whichever way it's going. And so I like what you're doing is, is where I'm going. I want to ask yeah. you this question, though. You're public now. So in 2021, you went public. You just mentioned that you had raised venture money in 2015. So for CEOs and IR pros out there, there is a pressure there to, to provide a return to investors. And there's also a tremendous pressure to maintain a market as a public company. How has that been since you raised capital, venture capital of sorts, whatever that was, which needs a return on their money and you go public and now you've got to, you've got to manage that money or manage the liquidity and the, and the market and the valuation such that, that you can maintain a market. So can you talk me through that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, a, certainly a wild ride for us in terms of going public in late 21 in October, 20, October 25th, 21. I think the S&P topped five days after that. Okay. Before the kind of the big, you know, rate driven sell off that happened. But maybe before I talk about kind of being public, which there's some, been some incredible learnings that we've gone through over the last 18 months now almost, is we, when I started it back in like 06, it was really kind of what I call love money. So love money is kind of the first money. And that's like friends and family. Those are people that are just, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't even really understand the business, but I'm willing to bet on you. And so you get a little bit of money and you get, you know, you're able to kind of get that first seed investment. Yeah. Well, I guess seed means something different in today's world. Like seeds, like an actual like asset class. Now, you know, back when I started, it was more of just kind of, uh, you know, friends cutting checks. Yeah. But we went from that and then some angel rounds. We've raised about like just under 2 million bucks Canadian by the end of 2008. So it, when that happened, when that crisis hit was actually when we closed like our first seed round, which was really challenging as well, because leading up to that, we were trying to get a deal done. We had a term sheet with a venture investor in 08, and then the crisis happened and they pulled their term sheet. Uh, LPs pulled their money, the fund doesn't exist. So then we had to have a, thank goodness we had a plan B mm. and was able to close that first round. But then we went from that point in 08 until 2015, running on our own cash. The key thing that always struck me and was really meaningful, is, and it comes to the return aspect, is that when you take outside money, like meaningful outside money from professional venture investors or growth equity, private equity, you know, those people, they, you have to make sure that you're able to put that money to work and deliver a return. Mm. And because if you don't, then you're going to, you're gambling your business. You can burn through that money, you don't deliver. And then that's how the world is kind of littered with companies that don't make it because they took money too, er too early or they weren't able to deliver that return. Mm. So we waited, we waited until 2015. And that's where we felt that the business was evolved enough. Our product set was evolved enough and our position in the market was evolved enough so that we knew that, okay, we can take this round and we can do something with it. We can scale sales and marketing. We can use it to drive acquisitions. And we went through a period there of kind of like, 2015 Series A acquisition, Series B acquisition, Series C, C two acquisitions. Hmm. So we went from like raise, scale, acquire, raise, scale, acquire. And that's what led us into 2020, the beginning of 2020. And so in each one of those rounds, it was really important to think about like how much money are we raising and making sure we know what we're going to do with it. And then ultimately, when we came through 2020, the first part of 20, like everyone is a bit you know disorientating, like March of 2020 yeah. was like, what the heck is going on? But then once everyone got all their home offices set up, this is my theory, would be once everyone figured out that like this virtual thing works really well, yeah. then the market just rocket ship mm. and so much easy money into the market. And we could also talk for a ton about that yeah. the distortion that, that created in, in late 20 and 21. But it was a huge tailwind for us that the public markets rocketed during that whole period. And so when we decided to then go public, one of the drivers was that we wanted to be able to eat our own cooking. So we wanted to, a big thing was we serve public companies. We built this whole platform around being a enabler of access across the capital markets and all the three sides as I talked about before. And so we wanted to be able to be a participant in that same market. And I actually said out loud a number of times, I want to feel the pain of being public hmm. because we hear about that from our clients, but I wanted to feel like all these pressures that you mentioned as well. I want to like live through that because I think that will be a tremendous input into our innovation. That'll help us build better products. Hmm. If we really live it. I did not know what I was asking for. Wow. <laughs> because the market on the other side of going public has just been really difficult as we went from this dramatic shift of risk on. The whole market was risk on. Everything was growth at all costs up and to the right to then that flipping instantly to being like risk off and anything that's burning money gets incredibly slammed in the market. 
So living through that has been a, a huge learning process to understand how public company, how public investors are very different than private, how important liquidity is on a public stock, and then and also what that means to have an investor relations program. But how do you attract the right investor at the right time? And that's the key thing that is essential is that not every investor, not they're all not the same, but they're also all not right. Like every company is on a continuum in terms of where they are in their business, where the market is, and your perfect investor in a public setting changes all the time based on where you are in the market and what's happening. So, you know, you go from growth investors to value, to GARP, to hedge funds, to long only, like they all serve a purpose in the trajectory of, of a public company's life. And I think that's what we really learned a lot over the last like 18 months in terms of how an IR program, this ability to understand who to spend time with and who to focus your efforts on is so essential at delivering that right match. Because if you get the right investor and the right company together at the right time, you get a premium yes. because that investor will pay more than the guy that doesn't understand your business, doesn't understand your space. So that kind of essential mix, you get that right, that drives premium valuation, that drives what all public companies are looking for, what all IR teams are looking for, which is to obtain that kind of premium valuation over their peers. Now that's starting, that shows up more and more. We, are, we already knew that with our products, but I think that's really helped us understand how that actually translates into the real world. Okay. And it's helping us in terms of like the products that we're building and what we're doing going forward. Talk me more through the, the relationship development with the right investor at the right time, because I think it's really, you're on point. And, and I think an example is you hear a lot of companies say, well, I want more institutions. Well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And, and what about retail? And how do they factor in? And, you know, there's so many elements here. So Absolutely. talk me through some of the experiences, the, the lessons you've taken away from this, and perhaps some of the, the guidance that you would have now being through it. So I would say as we're still very early on too, so I'll share yeah. kind of like my, my experience, but we've, you know, we've been public for six quarters now. So uh, I don't want to profess that we have got the, the silver of, bullet like, or something. Yeah, <laughs> we've figured everything out at all. But I will share, like when you look at like institutional investors, and that's absolutely what we hear all the time as well. And everyone wants that as well, because the benefit of an institution is they just manage, simply manage a lot more money. So they're going to commit a lot more capital to any idea. So then instead of saying, well, we're going to market to like a thousand retail investors, you're going to deal with one investor that's going to commit, you know, like a hundred million to the company or something like that. It's just that that rule of kind of efficiency that you're looking at, which is, you know, do you want to deal with a thousand or deal with one? Yeah. But institutions are not all the same. Very, very different. You think of like a, a long only, a long only fund, and there's many of them out there. They will approach investing like private equity, very, very similar to private equity, where they are going to like deeply understand the business, deeply understand the space, and they're going to do the work, and they're going to commit capital for five, seven year time cycle. Like they, they are going to, they're they're there like a PE investor. And the engagement with them is very is very much like that. It's very similar. And that's kind of what our my experience is, is dealing with investors like that, like venture, growth, private equity are all kind of approach businesses the same way. Yeah. But then you're looking at other ones that are much more time-based. So, you know, you've got value investors that want to come in and they're less interested in the very the long-term prospects of the business, but they're looking at you're undervalued now. We think we can come in. They have a strategy on how to make money that might be six months, it might be a year. But they are in for a period and they want to come in when it's undervalued and they want to be able to get out. So a value investor is much more focused on their entry point. Not that long only isn't focused on the entry yeah. point. They are. But a value investor is like if they can time it right and they can get in you know, 10% cheaper, they just made 10% more on their trade. So the understanding that dynamic when you're dealing with, it depends on who you're meeting with in terms of what you're focused on. But also from a targeting perspective, that when you're going out there and looking at it and you're saying, okay, everyone wants the long only fund. Everyone wants long only, like put the money in, hold it. But it's, it's, if you have a shareholder base that's all long only and everyone is in for the long term and no one is selling, then you have a liquidity problem. Mm. And then, then no one can get in and out of the stock. And then you, it inhibits your ability to get more investors in. So you have to have a mix. You have to have like a, like a rainbow of different types of investors. Some are in for the long term. Some are like high turnover hedge funds that are going to drive liquidity. Those can be seen as like a negative, but they're very important to have in your shareholder base because they drive liquidity and they allow people to kind of get in and out of the stock, which is an important trait that the stock has to have. 
So I think it's the key thing is understanding the various different types of investors and where you are as a company. So there's a ton of tech companies right now that are value buys because you know they, they're 80% off or they're, yep. they're 75% off from like their IPO price or from their highs. So they're trading kind of at a, a lower value than their intrinsic value. So intrinsic value, when the normalization of markets, they're probably worth like two or three times what they're worth today. That's a very different type of investor that's going to come into that than a long only that's looking to make kind of a longer term bet. Long only probably sits and waits for a little bit for it to prove itself yeah. out. Yeah, They're less interested in the, the explicit entry point than they are the long term viability of the business and the success. So I share all that because I think that's what makes targeting really important is that you can bang your head against the wall and go after the wrong investor for a long time and spend a lot of cycles doing it. Whereas if you can understand where you are and what makes sense for what investors, you can then target your efforts to go after those investors. There's so much comes to mind. When I look at the world of investor relations, I very much see the, the direct comparison to the world of sales and marketing for a product. If I'm going to sell my product to a target audience or to a target market, you've got to know what they need and what they want and when they want it and why they want it. And yes. you know, be hitting on a pain point. And I think that that using that to look at institutional investors, they'll have a thesis in which they've sold to their LPs, in which they can't buy from, and they can't just yep. go and be like, "Oh, hey, yeah, you're totally undervalued. Love this." It's like, no, there's no. there's a very defined set of, of things they do. And as professional investors, they need to go and do their due diligence. So you have a sales cycle. You have to develop the relationship, and also, I mean, the points that you're making, I think drives me to say that you need to ask questions of your investors or potential investors before just going and pitching them. It's like, where are you yes. at? What are you looking at? What are you interested in? Okay, I can clearly see that we're not a fit now, but as we progress, I'd like to keep in touch. You know, things like that versus just trying to hit everybody with, look at us, we're something to invest in. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think understanding so first off, completely agree of the the, the parallel with uh, sales. Mm. You think about sales being you're doing the same thing. You're target figuring out your audience. You want to target them. You want to market to them. You want to get them into your funnel. You want to work them through the funnel and close the deal. And actually, the interesting thing that I think that's happened in the in the capital markets from the sell side and investor relations is that for a long period, IR was what we talk about was really kind of like an inbound role. So meaning that people were in IR that were largely kind of financial PR people that had come up through comms, not come up through finance. Mm. They relied heavily on the sell side and the sell side, corporate access, sales desk, et cetera. They would tee up a lot of opportunities. So it would be like, hey, Corey, I got some investors. Can you see them? And I'm inbounding to you, giving you leads. Yeah. But what's happened since, I mean, for a bunch of different reasons about how trading commissions have come down, MIFID changed things, now MIFID's been kind of unwound, but but in general, the, there's been immense disruption in terms of the service level of the sell side. Yeah. So they'll still cover, research research coverage is still essential, but the amount of kind of like inbound phone calls of I've got an investor for you has dropped off significantly. Mm -hmm. So now IR departments have had to shift from being inbound to being outbound that they have to understand, they have to go find who are the investors that are the best fit, who are the ones I should be spending time. The best IR departments then leverage the sell side to help them. They don't wait for the phone to ring from, from their covering banks. What they do is they reach out and say, hey, like I want to meet with these, these firms. Can you help me get a meeting or can you help me get in front of them? And that's what I think is really, and this comes to like the digitization of the field, is that in order to do that, it's really about data. So then it's really understanding not only the behavior of investors from like a investing standpoint. So in terms of, you know, what are they buying? What are they selling, et cetera, which you have as part of like 13F filings and kind of generally available data. Any financial terminal will kind of tell you that. But what we think is really interesting is that because so much of the work that investors do is online now, they leave fingerprints all over the place in terms of what they're interested in. So what are they looking at? What websites are they are they visiting? What events are they attending? What earnings calls are they attending? Who's asking questions? What investor conferences are they going to? What research are they reading, et cetera? There is an immense amount of data hmm. out there that says, so one is, as you mentioned, and I totally subscribe to that too. It's like, if you can get a call with them and you can ask them, absolutely. And and if you can get a meeting with them, it's great to be able to, to understand them and saying, you know, tell me what, what you're looking for and when we would be a good fit. 
But there's another whole bucket, which is you understanding what investors are doing and who's interested in you based on all of their engagement and interactions that are happening yes. across across the market and across the web. And that's the digitization is I think there's so much exhaust out there about what investors are doing and what they're looking at that that's where we think is we think that's kind of like the untapped gold out there mm. in, in the world is that there is just an immense amount of digital kind of fingerprints as to what's what investors are interested in and the more that we are able to capture all of that and make it really easy to say hey these investors you've never talked to them but they're in your space they're doing work or they're on they're looking at all your stuff that you've never talked to them yeah we think you should reach out and and talk to them because that moment of time where they're interested in you and you're a good fit for them. And there's like this moment where if you can get in front of them at the right time, they commit capital to you and maybe not your peer and your competitor, which is the reality too in this world too. Like we're all competing for capital. Yeah. Well, there's nobody needs to invest in you, right? No, it's, it's, no, you know, and so, but what I really, I, I get really excited as you talk through this, because when you look at this, some of the best practices of, of digital marketing, and of digital sales are now being moved into the world of investor relations and investor engagement. And, and like you said, there's yeah. this so many fingerprints and touch points of, of activity of, of these potential investors that can be used to drive your intelligence of, of having better conversations with those who are, who are potentially interested in investing. And, and that's what I really like, or what I really get like excited about is seeing how if we were to, to look at a, a consumer product, a digitally mm-hmm. purchased consumer product, you have the ability from the moment they click on a social post to the time that something is shared with them, you know, exactly. follow all the way through this digital journey to the point where they buy. We're starting yeah. to see that in the world of investor relations. And I think that's really exciting. That is the entire model. That's the whole, when we think about like what we're really focused on and are really obsessed about is exactly that. So it's like, you know, in marketing, you've got like scoring prospects. So let's say someone clicks on a social ad, they download a white paper, they visit your website, they talk to a sales rep. Okay, like in that company's CRM, there's a score there that's like going up, which is saying like, this is a hot yeah. lead. This is a hot prospect. So like sales rep, call them now. Yeah, There's the same opportunity to do that in the market. And we think that's where there's tremendous potential that we've really been focused on for a while now. Oh, very cool. Can we talk about AI? What's AI? Yeah. <laughs> in another sense, <laughs> as I said that, I'm like, can we not talk about AI? Because I'm just so scared <laughs> about it. But it's here. It's going to change everything we're doing. So how? What are your feelings about this? What are your impressions? What are you seeing and what do you want to do about? Or how are you planning to use AI? I mean, first off, we could probably spend like a couple hours I easily yeah. talking, talking all about AI and kind of its impact on, uh, on the world today and, and what's coming. But I'll, I'll focus on kind of two areas. So the first is, and this is kind of a comment across all software, all technology. And you think about like what business today doesn't have software. It's everywhere. And there's the, they're saying that, you know, software is going to eat the world. I think we've seen that software has eaten the world. It's basically in every industry, software runs so much of, of business. The one thing that's incredible is the pace of development, the impact that AI is having on the pace of software development mm. that is exponential in terms of output. I'm sure you've heard like, you know, ChatGPT and there's Copilot, these aspects where it can help you write code and you can put code in and it will debug it. There's so much that's going on there. We, we did it. We did a hackathon about uh, six weeks ago or so. And the winning team, the most impressive thing about what the winning team did was not so much about how they applied AI. So you think like AI and invest relations, an obvious use case would be like, well, put a chatbot on a website. Mm. So instead of navigating the website, you can ask the chatbot something. Personally, I don't think that's all that interesting because why even go to the website? Just ask the chatbot somewhere else. Yeah. And the other things would be like, okay, let's point AI to a database of transcripts and ask questions like, what are the, what's the sentiment and what are the analysts asking, et cetera. As well, a pretty kind of obvious use case for anyone that's in the market say, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense to do that. This team built a product end-to-end in about four hours. So the way we do it is like over a day and a half, kind of conceive the idea. And it's like two, three engineers, a designer, and a product manager is typically like the team. Okay. They conceive the idea uh, one afternoon, next morning, build. Then that next afternoon, get ready to present, present, and then there's a judging panel. This team built 
like fully built out software product, like done end to end, fully tested, ready in production. Like it is not some vaporware, which is what a lot of hackathon products yeah. are. Like it's like the idea, but it's not real. It's kind of like wireframes that are kind of, of, yeah. And what they built would take a team of like five engineers, probably six weeks to build. And the way that they did it different is they didn't think about how what features should we build using AI? They said, what if we use AI to build the whole thing? And that was mind-blowing. Mind-blowing to see, what does this call it? A 10x acceleration on the output. And I think all software teams are just starting to see that there's this kind of impact is happening. So the amount of output that I think is going to happen with software over the next couple of years is you're just going like exponentially faster, more and more like the pace of releases that are coming across all industries and everything is absolutely mind blowing. So I think that's the first thing. And then you think about like, what is that? There's so many different things that kind of come out of that. But that's one aspect that I think that I know a lot of people when I talk to them, they, they don't quite, they haven't thought about that aspect about like how much the acceleration that's happening. So let me jump in there. And I want to tie this back to, to IR and, and discuss more about that. But how, how do you use these AI tools, or if, if I was a CEO of a company and looking and saying, Jesus, I got to get up to speed on this. You know, how do I, how do I use this? And one thing that I've been learning about and using them is, is how do I ask better questions of the AI tools to guide or to direct the actions of it? But when the only thing that we know now, excuse me, not the only thing, but it seems that AI is synonymous with chat GPT. Like that's the only kind of tool that people talk about. But there's so many others out there. Where would you start to put this together? If I was a CEO and, and, and I said, Daryl, like, that sounds really cool. How can I get my team to do this? So first off, I agree with you with ChatGPT. It's synonymous with it's AI the, it's right It's the now. Kleenex of, of AI. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because ChatGPT was on like, you know, Good Morning America. So it, it has like the brand, but there's so much that's happening. And, and there's, there's so much more than, than ChatGPT out there. The aspect is it's like one teams are if I was to talk to other CEOs and founders, it's like if you're not technical, your teams are probably already looking at it. They're probably already seeing because they're also equally kind of being blown away in terms of what can be done here. But I think it's it's making sure to to talk to those teams and ask them about like, what are we doing here? What are you looking at? What do you think the opportunities are? And they will come back because anyone that is connected to software is looking at these tools because one is, if you look at the thing about the prompting, I completely agree. It's, it's about how to ask better questions, but it's also about how do you set up the expectations for the, the bot to answer the right questions. So it's things like saying, okay, I want you to assume, like one thing I did recently is you ask, uh, we have an AI tool that we've just released on, on beta. So then you talk to it and say, okay, I want you to assume that you're a market leading analyst, you cover tech, you cover these types of companies, this is your kind of long-term view. These are the, the companies that you cover. Now I want you to write an initiation report on Q4 and then watch it write. And it's quite amazing what it can do, but it's like setting up those expected, the prompts, like you're setting up, this is what I, how I want you to look at the world and then ask questions is producing incredible output. And in software development, like what we're using today, one is building code, but also testing, QA automation, data transformation. So many different aspects are, are making things faster. But to bring it back to IR too, which is the second okay. part. So one yeah. is this like, holy smokes, this is a crazy point in time. The second around IR is I think there there is, as I mentioned, things like that are based on kind of like generally available information, I think are ubiquitous. So I think like AI features are coming for kind of all software. You just see AI will be like a layer like AWS. It's just like everything has an AI it's, feature. Yeah, yeah. So then the question is, what can you provide that is unique and differentiated? And I think that comes down to data. It comes down to like, what data can you train and tune these models against to be able to provide unique insights? So if you put a point in AI model to transcripts of earnings calls, that's something everyone can do. I mean, you and I, we could we could pop open chat GPT right now and fire a couple of transcripts in and ask it questions. Yeah. Like that's not innovative. That's not unique anymore. But being able to say, here's a database of all this data that only that only we have or only one company has, and now we're, we're going to train AI on that data. That's where you get unique and differentiated insights. 
I want to point something out there and, and I'll sheepishly say that I've, I've been a part of and financed a few deals where we would tie in, you know, the jargonisms of, of big data and AI in when the reality was that we didn't have enough data to really make an AI right. play. Yes. So, you know, I recognize, you know, where I was there in, in life, but hey, these things are what they are. The, the, the takeaway is though that, please correct me if, if I'm mistaken here, but if you do not have a significant data set, you cannot really go and perform deep AI kind of work. Is that correct in saying that? Like it's the the information, the data you have is what enables an artificially intelligent piece of software to, to provide insights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if you want to be able to provide unique insights, like things that are differentiated, that, that someone can't get those insights from generally, then yes, you need to have that kind of proprietary data set that you can train it on. Okay. Now, having said that, though, if, if you don't have that, then there is certainly there's many different ways to use AI, AI, but then you're using it kind of like as a feature. So then you're using it and that feature can be used by other companies. So I don't think you create kind of like competitive differentiation around kind of having the same AI feature that everyone else has. But the reality is, if you don't have it, you're likely less competitive in offering your, your software. Okay. So what we've been, this kind of connects back to the broad kind of data model we talked about, the the, the sales analogy we were talking about earlier. So when we look at like all these the, these kind of fingerprints out there, all this, these interactions that are occurring across the web, so we maintain our data is like based on like 15 million investors that are hitting our network every month. So that's like people going to websites, downloading things, looking at stuff, going to events, listening to an earnings call, going to investor conference, et cetera. And so we put all of that into one big data model that has like tens of millions of data points. Yep. And so that's what we think is really exciting is as we're, we're now pointing AI against that. The challenge in doing that, one of the challenges when you're working with really large data sets is how to control cost. Mm. Because if you just kind of openly do it and say, okay, let's just train this model on all this huge amount of data, the cost can get extreme and like right out of hand. Hmm. So particularly with open AI, that I think that's why there's a lot of competitors that are coming in market too. And there's so the, the economics I think will get better. Similar to like AWS. Like you know with AWS then Azure, that competitive dynamic drives better and better kind of economics that allows more and more people to use it. Yeah. But right now if you can easily kind of get into the millions in in training these models if you have a large data set. So you got to be really careful in terms of how you how you train it. And then would it not stand that if if you've got massive amounts of data that you're using to start to train an AI, that AI starts to remember and starts to to log its conclusions and build upon them, which is all stored data. And so it can become exponential. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, that's the whole power of it is that I think in a lot of the AI use cases now, people, myself included, you ask it questions like, the questions you can think of, but people kind of use it like a search engine. They'll put questions in like, for our stuff, we see questions like, who are my top shareholders? Or who should I target? Or I'm going to New York, where should I arrange an investor lunch? Those are the really powerful stuff is like, looking at the data, what are the unique trends that you see? What are the things that we don't see? What is the prediction that you think is coming? Or these aspects in terms of like, having it ask its own questions based on its own understanding of the data, that's where the really aha moments come from, because, mm. you know, as humans, we have a limited ability to, to consume and understand data. And that's the power of machines. The machines don't have any of those limitations. They can consume and understand orders of magnitude more data than any human can ever even comprehend and process it much, much faster. So I think that's the big opportunity with these data sets. The same thing applies like if you look at non-finance markets. Well, finance markets for sure, but I was going to go to like medical. You look at like Medical, you having a machine do a, a diagnosis based on like a database of tens of thousands or millions of patients, they're going to be able to uncover patterns that a human would never be able to see. And I think that's the really powerful thing when you apply it to the world of finance. Yes. Okay. If we were to bring it back to something that would make AI accessible for IR professionals and the CEOs out there from you know your smallest small caps and juniors up the chain. Where would you suggest they look and they start to to focus their energy to wrap their heads around AI? It's about efficiency. It's about being able to simply do more that most IR professionals are a team of one. Mm. If they're lucky, they're a team of two. And then you get into kind of the stratosphere of kind of like the, the very top echelon have teams of like four or five or larger teams. But most companies, even some of the largest ones too, we're not just talking kind of like micro caps and small caps that have 
a small IR team, you're talking like a $10 billion market cap company can easily have like an army of one. Traditionally, a lot of IR has leaned on service providers to be able to kind of help them do more things. So like help them on building a board deck or figuring out like, what's the narrative here? Or I'm going to be communicating to my investors or who should I be targeting? And I think that the when they think about how to utilize AI, it's about utilizing it like as a co-pilot. Mm-hmm. So being able to, for it to to help understand like who should we be targeting? We're going to this city. Who should we be meeting? Who's been engaging with our content that we should be focused on? Who should I be concerned about? Is there any activist building a position in our space? Those types of things, I think, so allows them to have a much bigger impact without having more resources. And I think that's where what you're going to see is like these tools that are coming to market are really focused on that, which is really just saying, hey, Corey, like I know I know what your world is like. So let me give you something which is going to help you automate a big chunk of the work that you normally do in a very proactive way. That's where I think the the real potential is. It is mind boggling, you know, an army of one for, for some of these organizations. It's just, you know, and for such an important function there. So, but I, I also like the point of like being a co-pilot to drive those efficiencies. Yes. I'm curious. I want to bring back to, to you as a leader building Q4. You took us earlier on in our conversation, you took us through kind of the first five years there and, the, and then how you've built up and how have you changed as a leader, as a CEO, as the company has grown? Oh, that's a that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> no tears, okay? <laughs> uh, oh, there have been for sure. It's the thing I've always believed, and I didn't make this up, but one of my mentors early on shared it with me, which is that as the leader of the company, founder, and then CEO, the reality is that if you're not evolving faster than the business, then you become a block. Mm. And that may be the business starts to become it's too large, and you don't have the right team underneath you. You're not delegating enough. So that decisions are coming to you, but you're not making them fast enough, or you are holding on to some part of the business that you really like, that you're not particularly good at, but you still really like it. So, you know, certain CEOs love to be a part of product or they want to be part of the creative stuff, or they want to be, they want to sell, they want to talk to customers, but they really aren't as good nearly as the professionals that should be in those roles. Hmm. In those moments, they come many, many times over the trajectory of a company's life. I think it's really important for the CEO to understand and identify, be self-aware, being like, I'm now a block. And if the CEO is a block and they're not evolving fast enough, then they're the core problem. And you see that happen you know, a lot of times in, as companies grow, that they get to a point and they just can't seem to break out. And in a lot of cases, it's because there is a block at the top that's just not willing to change to adapt the business. And So I think that's one thing I've always tried to work on is understanding, am I understanding really where the business is today? And and am I focused on thinking, what is this business in two years and in three years? And what are we doing today to make sure that we're setting ourselves up for that? Okay. And then being willing to break it all down because the reality is, this is another saying that I didn't invent, is like what got you here is not going to get you there. And so you can have, whether that's people, process, products, markets, whatever it is, you can say like, well, we've been doing this for the last five years and look at what we've achieved. And in reality, you have to look at that and be like irrelevant, irrelevant. Mm. Like all that matters is what we're doing going forward. And so if we need to disassemble that and change that and change people, then that's something that we have to do in order to continue growing the business. And so I think having that kind of mentality is something that is, is really important to be able to grow a business over a long period of time. Can you take me deeper into some of your thought processes around that? Because I think it's easy for us to revert to the, the things we think most often about. And it takes a lot of calories, a lot of cognitive calories to, to start to think about things that, that we've never thought about before, if you will. So when you're looking mm-hmm. into the future and you're, you're envisioning the future, at times you're envisioning things that you've never experienced before, potentially. So can you take us deeper into some of your, your thought processes and, and how you're pushing yourself out of being that block? Your natural inclination, especially when you start a business, is that you have to work an incredible amount of time in the business. So you are selling and building and supporting and raising money. And everything is like every day is filled with a to-do list that's just incredibly long that needs to be done to work. It, and you're working in the business. But what you have to do is then it's break out of that to work on the business. And when you work on the business, then that's when you're saying, okay, I'm, if you find yourself 
day to day and all you're doing is chasing tasks and you're putting out fires and you're doing things, you're not evolving the business. You're not spending your time thinking about, are we doing the right things? You're mm-hmm. just saying like, this nut has to go on this bolt again, keep going, keep going, keep going. But then you're like, hold on a second. Like you need to operate at a level higher than looking at the production line to say, are we in the right business? Are we in the right markets? What do we need to do to go forward? And I think what's been helpful for me is always having a lot of advisors, a lot of advisors, a lot of mentors, a lot of people that I attract into the business. And for me, I've been very fortunate with investors. So the very early on, some of the that early kind of I mentioned kind of love money or angel money, those folks have been tremendously helpful at growing the business. And because I think they don't necessarily have to have the answer, but being able to go to them and say, just give me your opinion, like mm. unfiltered. What do you think? And do you, where do you think about the direction of the business? And it's not to say, I ask you your opinion, Corey, on, on the business and you give me your opinion. I'm like, okay, that's it. Yeah. Like turn left. It's not, it's an input. It's an input into an understanding the, uh, understanding the business from uh, many different perspectives. Yeah, that's... And I think then that, that helps you understand, okay, how do we make these? What changes do we need to make? But The one thing that's most difficult, I think, in growing a business is dealing with people. People are the most challenging part because you can have a tremendous team that you founded the business with that will take you to a certain point, and then you need to make changes. You need to make changes in order to set yourself up for the next. And I think that's been the hardest learning for me over time is uh, is how essential that is, and still very much learning about how the best way to uh, to work with people. I've started to come and formulate the analogy in my head that building businesses is, and the corporate athletes who do that, there's a level of athleticism within those who are able to build companies. And when you look at somebody like hockey as an analogy, I mean, and I'm not a big hockey fan, so I've probably thrown out names that are dated, but like a Sidney Crosby, a Wayne Gretzky, uh, you know, those who rise to, to the 0.001% of, of execution within that the Mark Zuckerbergs, the, you know, the co-founders and co-CEOs of Netflix, you know, these are examples of, of those who have come from nothing and risen mm-hmm. up and to act on that level. So it's always a fascinating kind of thought experiment to sit there and try to understand how they get there. And I think they would reflect a lot of what you've said here too. You have to continually change and, and start to work outside of it. And I also want to bring it back to your point about mentors and having discussions there for opening up perspective. Mm-hmm. How have you developed mentoring relationships? And I would imagine some of them have also had to evolve as well. So one thing too, I just want to key off the athlete side is I believe that in a huge way, hmm. that it's a very similar mindset. I grew up skiing, so I was a competitive skier. So I grew up like in my teen years and early 20s, I was a mogul skier. Okay. And so it formed a lot of how I kind of like think of the, the world and challenges ahead, which is like, what's the challenge? Put a plan in place, put the work in. Like you cannot okay. replace putting the work in. Yeah. But the other aspect too is that that teams are, as I think about the business as a sports team, and I think that's a really, it's been helpful for me to think about people and dynamics like that, which is like, we're here to score goals. And we're here to score goals and we have to work together to do that. But it's also identifying where is the weak point in our game? Where is the weak? And there's always a weak point. There is one of the things that people ask me, like, what do you do? And it's like one of the things I talk about, my role is hunting for weakness. Like it's Mm. just hunting for it. Like there is no matter how good you think you are, there is many, many problems in the business. And like your role as leader is to uncover and make sure that we're not bullshitting ourselves in thinking like, oh, everything's good, whereas under the surface, there's all sorts of problems. Mm. And I think that's a very kind of sports way of thinking. There's always, you can always, always improve, and it's always moving that bar up. But that's something that I really do think is really important for people to understand. That also helps when making changes with people. Like if you have to change out a leader, it's not necessarily because like, I, it's not like I think any less of this person like as a human and yeah. they bring many things and we enjoy being together, but it's just simply like, listen, we have to trade. If we want to win, we have to trade. Yeah. And trading is a part of winning sports teams and sports franchises. And trading is an important part of building a company over time. Yeah. And I forgot about the second part of your question. Sorry. Yeah, no sweat. No, I, I'm just thinking about the, the trading aspect there. And I mean, it's, it's a difficult one. Man, I really actually, as, as a non-sports fan, admittedly, I find it a fascinating world. And I like you adding to my analogy there of having to trade in and out. Side note, if, if you are interested, both the listeners and yourself, Daryl, I interviewed a guy named Aaron Vilpati, former NHL Canuck, or oh, really? Canuck. And his 
his accounts of, of being in the NHL is just like, oh my God, man. It just, I'm sure. talk about it a pressure cooker. So yeah, that's another discussion in itself. But the second mentors, part of my question mentors. was mentors and building mentor relationships, making them fruitful, but also evolving with them. Because I would imagine as you grow and as you grow a business, you have to yeah. trade out. So there's kind of two things there. One would be the investors that you attract to the business really do matter. I've talked to other entrepreneurs and they'll say, well, you know, money's money. I, I don't really care. I'm not looking for the value add. All I care is about like whoever's going to pay the most for the company. And I, I have a very different view of that, that I think one is if you're taking that approach, you, you're thinking that valuation and raising money is winning mm. and it's not. It's not at all. Like raising is not winning. Raising allows you to play the game, to get yes. into the game. Yeah, yeah. Cost it's not winning. Now, media can kind of frame it like that. Oh, look at how much money this company raised. But that's not winning. Like winning is great, building a great, durable, long-term business or exiting, whatever it is your path that you want to achieve. But those are the two. That's how you win on the both of them. Raising money isn't winning. So why I share that is that when you're marketing the company and you're attracting investors, is really spend time to get to know who these people are and how they can help you. Hmm. It takes a broad spectrum of them. You know, you don't want to have a group of investors that all look at the, the world the same way. They all think the same way. And you've got kind of groupthink at the board level. That's not as helpful as having a diverse opinions and diverse backgrounds that can help you in the business. So I think that's the one thing is that qualitative aspect of which investors you bring into the business is really, really important. And listen to investors. Now, in the public setting, I found that listening to public investors is also very helpful because that aspect of like zoom out and look at the business, hmm. they'll tell you exactly what they think through their lens. And their lens, some of them are like, I don't really care what you do, but financial profile, you have this problem, this problem, this problem. Yeah. So I think being very open to criticism, being very open to feedback is a really important way to understand how the world uh, looks at that in mentors. But then the other is don't be shy. Like if there's someone in your space, someone that you admire, someone that is that you look up to, email them, call them, message them. I mean, I'm not saying stalk them. I'm not saying do all yes. that repetitively. <laughs> but I'm saying put yourself out there. You'll be amazed at how open people are to talk to you. You're like saying, hey, like I'm I'm an entrepreneur. I'm building this business. I just look at your background. I think I could learn a ton from you. Can I buy you a coffee or can we get together or could we jump on a Zoom? Not everyone is going to respond, but more will respond than you think before you start. And then that gives like tremendous insights. And then you, you know, if you can go to someone, you say like, Hey, I just want to learn from you. Like, tell me about your background and how did you do this? Nine out of 10 people will spend yeah. time telling you about their life because that's as humans, we like, you know, we love talking about ourselves. Yeah. If someone is genuinely interested in your career, if I say like, Corey, I want to understand your career and how you got here. You're not going to be like, hey, piss off. I don't want to talk to you. So I think that's been very helpful for me as well. As, and to not assume that someone doesn't want to hear from you is just mm. reach out, send the email, make yeah. the phone call, run into them at a conference, introduce yourself. That idea of like, don't be shy and lean in and put yourself out there just attracts a ton of people that can help you. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a, a very important point is that there's nothing wrong with asking putting yourself out there and it's amazing yeah but i should say too the key thing too is but when someone gives you feedback or criticism don't convince yourself that they're wrong oh yes like don't spend time being like oh well that's interesting but yeah you don't know this this and this so your opinion is irrelevant it's like yeah you're kind of just wasted all your own time yeah. So yeah be open to criticism and taking it in it's not to say you're doing something wrong but that perception exists so it's important to do that and that's key to your own development is being truly open to feedback. Oh, uh, yeah. Daryl, one thing I'm looking at time and I can't believe it. Like, I think you and I could put at least <laughs> another two more hours here. But yes, it's been good. As you're talking through mentorship, bringing investors in, and you touched a bit on board, can you talk to me about board composition and what it means to you as a, as a public company and how you've gone about that? I think it is, uh, it's about those diverse backgrounds. So I think understanding the business that you're in. And what's the kind of cross-section of represent, not representation, but backgrounds that you want to have yeah. on your board for, I think, having something which represents customers, someone that represents kind of, I'm talking broadly, like not just Q4, but got someone that really understands customers, someone that understands the market, someone that understands regulatory. And you think about what are the kind of key things that you're trying to drive? So let's say you're trying to build a business that is highly reliant on acquisitions. Well, then having someone there that has a huge amount of experience in acquisitions. Yes. Is really important. 
But you want that diversity because what you wouldn't want is a board of like five or seven people and they all have acquisition backgrounds. So you've got kind of that part cornered, <laughs> but yet you don't have anyone that really understands customers. So you want to have, I think that understanding your own strategy and where you're going. And then when you look at your board, you want to say like, does this represent like a, a overlay to our strategy of what we're trying to achieve and making sure that you've got that diverse set of people around the table. That's not always possible when a company is early. When you're early and you're attracting money, money drives the board. So it's yeah. like, you know, you do a venture round, they're on the board. You do another round, they're on the board. You do another round, they're on the board. Then it's really money around the board. But as the company gets a little bit bigger, that's where then you have the opportunity to bring independence in. And I think using independent board members is something like if I look back further, there's there was points there where we had advisors and board members that were independent and they were really good for like a period of the company. Hmm. Yeah. And you want to be able to, it's the same thing like a sports team with your board too. Like whatever your board is, let's say you're like three or four years into the business or five years in, you have your board. You shouldn't think that this is now my board Except forever. For life. You want to think same thing, team, is this board helping me get to the next level? Is this going to help me evolve? Do we need to make some trades? Do we need to say, you know, I think that we should get this person should come on, this person should come off. And those are can be tough conversations with board members, depending upon how experienced they are as a board member and whether they have money in or not. But those are important conversations to have. So I think when you attract people to the board, you want to have those discussions that setting expectations that this is not like a life role yes. that, you know, we're going to do this. It's kind of an annual thing that we're reviewing and we want to make sure this, this makes sense. Because like, if I look at our board from like over the last like 10 years, there's been many changes that have occurred over time. And that's because you kind of look at saying we would be better off if we had this kind of person. Mm. So let's, let's attract them. And that means we're going to have to ask this person to step off. And as long as you do that all professionally, everyone understands it's all in the interest of building a great business. Is it safe to say that you have uh, a very open and ongoing dialogue with all of your board members and, and the management team does as well? Is that something that is how you use that, that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Like one of the things that, that a mentor taught me very early on was make sure to never have any topic in your board meeting. There's no discussion of that should be new in a board meeting. Hmm. So if you have something contentious, you have an issue, you have a challenge in the business, all of those conversations happen before the board meeting. So it's really leaning into all those members, having one-on-one dialogues, making sure you know where everyone is at, even having small group ones, making sure that there's a decision to be made. By the time we get in the board meeting, it's just procedural on that decision. That decision's already been made and everyone's on the same page. You don't want to surprise the board at any one point. Yeah, you don't want to have a surprise or like, because you don't want to be surprised being like, oh my gosh, Bob, what is that comment? Yeah, like, where did that, where come, did from? that come from? Yeah, uh, You want to really understand where they're at. So that means spending a, a good chunk of time in staying close to them and understanding and giving them up. You also don't want them to show up in the board meeting and be like, okay, so how was the quarter? That kind of consistent communication. Now, we do give a lot of exposure to the management team, to the board, but not as much as that kind of the frequency that uh, that I would spend with the board yeah. or the CFO. My, myself and the CFO, those are the ones, that's the primary relationship to the board management team is there to kind of cover certain strategic initiatives. I asked that because I, I had dinner with one of our former podcast guests who has been very successful on an international scale in building companies. And, and now he does a lot of investing and restructuring. And, and he said, as soon as I meet a CEO who won't give me access or is the, is the bottleneck to the rest of his management team, I know there's a problem. Oh, yes. Yeah. If the board is not able to really have an open and transparent dialogue with anybody and everybody and have good, solid conversation, it's like, problem. Absolutely. I was yeah. like, ah, interesting way to quickly identify if there's something going on. We've just ripped through an hour. And I know <laughs> that you and I could keep on talking. I want to ask if certainly final thoughts to share with the audience but are there any points that you wanted to speak to that, that are important to you that we've missed because we've just ripped through this time so quick? No, I mean, I don't think so. We've covered off kind of all, all the different aspects. I was really looking forward to the call and, or the podcast and see uh, you know, where it would take us. So no, I think it's been, uh, it's been really good chatting things through. It's been quite a, a journey from us being public to now, and uh, we've learned an absolute ton. And so it, I, uh, I enjoyed sharing a little bit of that with you and your listeners. Yeah, it's been it's been very real, Daryl. I appreciate it and I enjoyed it. And I, I took a note there of, you know, kind of eating your own cooking and the pain of being public. Yeah, it is. It changes a lot. It changes a lot. It changes so many things about the company that 
if anyone is considering going public, please reach out to me and I can I can share <laughs> what my my personal experience has been going through it and and what to be prepared for. Yeah, my advice I've had people ask me, you know, we're considering going public and I'm my instant response is don't. But if you need to <laughs> No, no, I think it's good. There's a lot of questions to it can enable an absolute ton. Now, I mean, we went public right before a huge market sell-off. So timing-wise, you can look at it two ways. One, either we, I mean, we raise money, we raise like a hundred million bucks at our best valuation, best multiple that we've seen. So yeah. it's like we we raise the largest amount at our highest valuation. So that's very good. You know, we still have a, we still have a huge chunk of that money. So it's very good. I think being public is uh, certainly scale matters. So being large enough really matters. And it's really understanding how much more time it takes as well. Like when I think about myself as CEO, like being in market, you know, I spend a lot of time with investors now. And those are the aspects that are kind of the tactical aspects. The one thing that's unique is that when you go public, you have a stock price and everyone knows that. So it's not like, oh, what? There's some live number that is the valuation of your company. But to be honest, for me going through that and living with that kind of like immediately following Mm. when that price is not going the direction that you want it to go when you're part of like a broad market sell-off that's got nothing to do with your company, but you're just part of that ocean that's either rising or falling. Yeah, That was a whole new muscle to deal with, to be able oh, to separate kind of the intrinsic value and the fundamentals of the business from what that price is. And so that was the learnings that I had going through. It was how much new muscle that it would take to be able to really navigate that effectively. And to separate yourself from that. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Dell, I really appreciate your time. This was a lot of fun. I hope we can have another conversation in the future. Yeah, we'll wrap it up there. Likewise, Corey. Appreciate it. Congrats on the podcast. It's great. As I mentioned in our preview, I've listened to a bunch of episodes and they're all fantastic. You're doing an amazing job. And thanks again for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.